Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Monday, October 21st. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, find out how a nationwide shortage of an anti-cancer drug is affecting kids with cancer right here in Mississippi. And after Bite Size Tech, the family of the late Emmett Till are in Mississippi to honor the Chicago teen whose Delta murder was a catalyst in the civil rights movement. And find out how digital technology is giving people a way to remember Till that can never be riddled with bullets. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. A nationwide shortage of a critical pediatric cancer drug has Mississippi's Batson Children's Hospital putting a contingency plan in place. Dr. Anderson Collier says one of the two companies that made Vincristine has stopped production. He says doctors use the drug for almost every major tumor they treat in children. Through careful rationing, Collier says they should have enough vincristine to get through six weeks or so. After that, who knows? Dr. Anderson Collier spoke with MPB's Desiree Frazier. I have a lot of emotions. One of them is anger, honestly, that a medication that we have used for so long with such good results uh, is not available uh, in the United States of America frustration uh, for most of those same reasons. Uh, And I have anxiety uh, because I know that it it is an anxious time for parents. They go through a lot as it is. They have a child with cancer. Their kid's getting chemo. Their life is not normal. And to throw something like this uh, on top of it um, is tough on the families. Uh, I'm uh, anxious about what decisions we're hopefully not going to have to make uh, in the coming weeks. Uh, Hopefully we can conserve enough and uh, the national efforts, the FDA efforts, the Children's Oncology Group efforts, and the drug companies' efforts will um, get drug available uh, sooner than what, what we 
think it might be. What do you say to people and say, how can you run out of this if you have manufacturers making it? Um, isn't there some kind of law that they would have to notify uh, medical providers or um, a medical department so that provisions could be made ahead of time? Uh, our professional organizations and our research organizations do a very good job of trying to find out what drugs might be on shortage in the future. Uh, And one of the reasons that we were able to buy some extra and stockpile what we have uh, is because we sort of heard several weeks ago that this was potentially coming. How important is this drug to the treatment that you provide here? We use vincristine for essentially every major tumor type that we treat. Uh, in pediatric oncology. Uh, There are two or three tumor types that I can think of, treatment regimens that do not contain vincristine and a dozen or more that do. Um, Vincristine has been around for a very long time uh, because of its favorable toxicity profile uh, and uh, the ways in which we can combine it with other medications. We use a lot of it. Um, It does not suppress blood counts very much. Uh, It doesn't uh, increase toxicities of other medications. So it it is, as one of my colleagues said, a workhorse uh, for pediatric oncology. If we get to the point where we're not able to give medications, there will be some detrimental effect. Our hope is that, one, we can conserve and not get to that point. Two, that even if we get to the point where we're not able to give it, that it will be a very short period of time uh, so that patients would miss one or two dosages at most before uh, we can get drug delivered again. So I'm hopeful that it will not be very detrimental. Uh, If this goes on for longer than anticipated, then it will become a bigger issue. So you're talking like six weeks out. You have enough for six weeks. We have enough for our current patients for at least six weeks, probably up to eight. Um, What I don't know, uh, because it's not predictable, is new patients. Uh, When I get new patients in who need this medication, that is obviously going to use up the supply that we have. Going back to one of the things we talked about at the beginning, pretty much everybody who treats childhood cancer uh, is to some degree or another, outraged that this is a problem, that we're even having to have this conversation. There's a lot of underlying reasons for that. What I would encourage people to do is to contact the FDA. The Food and Drug Administration, of course, is oversees all uh, pharmaceuticals in the United States. Uh, and ask, advocate uh, for children with cancer. Uh, advocate for this should not be a problem in the United States of America. Uh, We should not get to the point where we cannot deliver a life-saving cancer treatment to kids with cancer. And I'll take that one step further. We shouldn't be at the point where we can't deliver life-saving treatment for kids with any illness. I'm obviously biased being an oncologist, but this should be true of kids with heart disease. It should be true of kids of infection. We should never be in a, in a place where we don't, we don't have drug uh, to deliver. So I would encourage people to contact their representatives, to contact the FDA, and figure out how can we prevent this from happening again. 
we are where we are at the moment. We will manage this situation uh, and we will get through it. My hope is that we get to the point where we don't have this situation again. Dr. Anderson Collier with MPB's Desiree Fraser. Pfizer is one of the companies that makes Vincristine. It says they're trying to ship more of the drug by the end of the month. Coming up, the family of the late Emmett Till are in Mississippi to honor the Chicago teen whose Delta murder was a catalyst in the civil rights movement. That's after bite-sized tech from the Everyday Tech team. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. recommendations are about to get a lot better. Most Americans don't exactly know to what extent Facebook controls their online existence and phone cases made out of artificial human skin. Yep, I'm Jay White, and here's this week's Bite Size Tech. Telecom Paris has developed phone cases that are supposed to mimic the squishy haptics of human skin, as Gizmodo described it. It's called Skin on Interface, and it is supposed to be able to not just detect, but respond to touch like real human skin. The um, gadget is described to understand gestural and touch inputs, as well as particular emotions that could be perceived from the force of certain gestures. Mimicking human skin, the Skin on Interface is made of multiple layers, pliable copper wire between a silicone-based epidermis and hypodermis, all molded together to feel like human skin. The team at Telecom Paris has already stretched this stuff over a touchscreen laptop and a smartwatch, and the stuff that makes your phone look like a soap-sized bar of flesh will be coming near us soon. Soon enough, anyway, the product will be represented by Telecom Paris a French university, and the French National Center for Scientific Research at the Association for Computing Machinery Symposium on User Interface Software and Technology. That conference, full of the trendy hipsters, will be in New Orleans in June of 2020. The Pew Pew Research Center released a new report this month measuring the digital literacy of American adults on topics like cybersecurity and the general tech industry. The report called Americans and Digital Knowledge revealed that a majority of participants answered fewer than half of the 10 rather basic questions correctly. Among the questions Pew asked was whether or not Facebook owned Instagram and WhatsApp. Just 29% of those surveyed answered correctly. Yes, Facebook does own Instagram and WhatsApp. It should be noted, I suppose, that nearly half didn't answer incorrectly, but instead simply admitted that they just didn't know. Pew says that the results mean that most American adults' use of social media is out of sync with the understanding of the very few companies that control social media. The survey, taken in June of almost 4,300 Americans, asked about such functions as knowing what a web cookie does, identifying two-factor authentication, and whether people could identify Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey in a photo. Full transparency, I've tweeted more than 60,000 times, and I could not point out to you Jack Dorsey from Jack Bauer or Jack Spear in a lineup. Finally, Hulu announced numerous improvements last week aimed at giving the user more direct control over their recommendations, part of a better, more personalized experience for its viewers. New like and dislike buttons were rolled out with the announcement available on seemingly all platforms with the exception of the Hulu mobile app, at least for the time being. The company isn't stopping there. They're also testing a more improved search experience that's designed to identify and automatically correct misspellings to help you save time, especially on typing cumbersome platforms forms like smart TVs. 
For more tech news, fixes, insight, and more, listen to MPB's Everyday Tech. The show is on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and the MPB Public Media app. That's free in the iTunes and Google Play stores. And the show airs live Wednesday mornings at 10, right here on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. A fourth sign commemorating Emmett Till's death is now up in the Mississippi Delta near the site where the Chicago teen was found murdered in 1955. The new sign replaces the bullet-riddled sign, which was only put up last year. This summer, an image of three University of Mississippi students standing near the vandalized sign with guns went viral. Erica Gordon-Taylor is Emmett Till's cousin. She tells MPB's Alexandra Watts her cousin's murder falls into the long history of lynching in the United States, even though it wasn't a hanging. Lynching does, doesn't just come by a form of hanging. Uh, a lot of our children are being lynched daily, weekly, across the country, um, where, whether it's you know through police violence or uh, gun violence. We are losing our babies. Do you think, uh, talking about the young too, do you think a lot of younger people really don't know Emmett Till's story? Um, I know when I was in school, I was not taught about him. I learned about it from home. And are you hoping that's going to change? Are you kind of seeing it change? I think more people know the story now, more of our young people. Many still do not know. But I think um, there was a resurgence really for our young people in 2013 when Little Wayne um, made his song and disgraced Emmett's name and his lyrics young people really became aware. I think that was the biggest positive that came out of that whole uh, tragic event. And the young people didn't know who Emmett was until he started saying his name in the song. So I think that helped. And then you have with Trayvon Martin, when, when Trayvon Martin was murdered, they compared his murder somewhat to Emmett Till and what happened. I think one of the biggest comparisons would be that our young people took a stand. They stood up. They were tired. And so when Emmett was murdered, young people got involved in the movement. And so when Trayvon Martin was murdered, young people got up and all across the nation, you had marches and the young people out and about uh, calling for justice because they felt that that was someone else that they could identify with what had happened to Trayvon. You know, it's, it's a kid like them, so to speak. Um, if they looked in the mirror, they wouldn't see themselves. They would see Emmett Till reflecting back at them because it's someone that they can identify with. They would see Trayvon Martin's image reflecting back at them because that's a young person that was murdered that they could identify with. So there's been a resurgence. You had um, Trayvon Martin, then you had Jordan Davis, then you had Michael Brown. So you had a lot of these young black men being gunned down and murdered. So our young people are very alert and aware as to who Emmett is more today than they were yesterday. How did you feel when you saw the recent photo of the three Ole Miss students standing um, um, in front of the bullet written sign? I wasn't so much angry as I was hurt, but my first thought was, what was their logic behind it? What made them feel like, oh, this is what we want to do, this is something we need to do, um... Also, why did they feel it was okay to do it? You know, where was their, the thought process behind it? Because if, to get up, even if they didn't shoot the sign, because we don't know if they shot the sign, I don't really think they did, but to use that as an opportunity 
what statement were you trying to make standing in front of that sign with those weapons? And it had been shot down, shot up, and it was in memoriam of Emmett's, you know. So what was your thought process? To me, that demonstrates how significantly racism exists today, especially still here in Mississippi. Um, being here today, there are so many um, Till relatives and then also relatives of other people involved in the case. How important is it to keep this going generations and generations on? It's very important because... Um, that's what that's what his mother wanted. First of all, she wanted the Till name to ring for all eternity. She didn't want anyone to forget what happened to her son in Mississippi. And so, because she Emma was an only child, she was an only child. We're all cousins. It's up to our our children and their children to keep the legacy alive in our family. So it's very important. Dave Tell is a communications professor at the University of Kansas and author of the 2019 book, Remembering Emmett Till. He's also developing a mobile app called the Emmett Till Memory Project. It uses GPS technology to locate sites that were significant in Emmett Till's life and death. Professor Tell talks with our Alexandra Watts about the history of vandalism against Till markers. The app has its origins in the long context of Emmett Till commemoration. If you start with the murder of Emmett Till in 1955, you have to go 49 years and 11 months before the first uh, dollar is spent on Till commemoration in the state of Mississippi. Uh, And uh, in 2008, the Emmett Till Memorial Commission started for the first time putting up markers telling Till's story on public land, but within months those markers were vandalized, they were stolen, thrown into the river, shot, replaced, shot again, defaced with acid, spray-painted with letters KKK. So that sign was first put up at Grabal Landing in March of 2008. Within six months, the sign was stolen. And according to the sheriff, who looked at tire treads, the sheriff concluded that the sign had been thrown in the river similar to Till's body, a fact not lost on the local community for sure. The sign was quickly replaced. And then that was sign number two. And that sign number two stood for eight years-ish, gradually filled with over 100 bullet holes. So in 2016, sign number, in the context of the national conversation about vandalism, the sign number two was taken down. They then printed a third identical aluminum sign. That sign lasted only 35 days before it, too, was shot. That story came to light, I think, in fall of 2017, although my dates get hazy here. Um, But in the controversy over the second sign, a big-hearted sign maker up in New York City called Light Bright Neon agreed to fabricate and design a bulletproof sign. So this was in the works for a couple years now. And so it was designed by Ralph Applebaum Associates. That's the same design firm that did the United States Holocaust Museum. It was fabricated by Light Bright Neon, all work done pro bono. And... It was completed in the summer of 2019 at virtually the same time that the photo surfaced of the three Ole Miss fraternity brothers posed in front of it. So July, that's July 2019, that photo uh, surfaces. And it's literally a matter of within days that the sign maker from New York City calls and says, okay, our sign is done. And then this photo goes viral. So they immediately cut down the third sign. They send it down to Jackson to be tested for ballistics. That's when they made the plans for this ceremony that we're having today to dedicate this fourth bulletproof sign. The vandalism was targeted and it was persistent. 
And that was the origin of the Emmett Till Memory Project, trying to think of a vandal-proof way to tell Emmett Till's story. It is uh, easy to shoot a sign. It's more difficult to vandalize a smartphone app. So what we've done is we took the sites that were commemorated by signs, and we took a few other sites, and we put it all on a GPS-enabled smartphone app called the Emmett Till Memory Project that will take users to 18 sites in the Mississippi Delta. About two weeks ago, uh, myself and Patrick, director of the ETMC, went up to Chicago when we spent almost 24 hours with the Till family. Uh, they drove us around Chicago in a 15-passenger van, taking us to the sites that were important to the Till story in Chicago. And uh, it's their desire that, that the Chicago sites be part of our app, too. So in the next few months, I will add five or six sites from Chicago to the Emmett Till Memory Project as well. So you've been involved with this for a while, but what's it like being involved with a case that's not only historic, but one that's still, you know, making the news and things are still happening, you know, so many decades later? Well, it's the kind of story I want to be involved with. When I, I tell people when I started this story uh, back in 2004, I approached it as a detached historian that the murder of Emmett Till was just one more thing that happened back in time that I could learn the facts about. And once I learned the facts, that's all there was to know. But since for the last five years, since it's been a personal story that I've known people on the ground, I've seen the signs being made, being shot, I've seen the drama, I've become convinced that Till's story is not a story of 1955. It's a story that started in 1955 and is now 64 years old and growing. And the chance to be involved in a story that's still ongoing is a real, real privilege. So where are some of the places um, that the app will take you to? I mean, probably obviously here, Bryant's Groceries. What are some of the other places around the Delta um, related to Emmett Till? Great. One of my favorite places is very out of the way, but it is the all-black town of Mount Bayou, where in 1955, the Mississippi activist T.R.M. Howard housed Emmett Till's mother and housed members of the black press. And if it weren't for the people who stayed in Mound Bayou during the trial, we would never know the truth of what happened. It was the black press who discovered the truth while they were lodged in Mound Bayou. And so uh, we put that site on the Emmett Till Memory Project as a chance to tell their story. Professor Dave Tell with MPB's Alexandra Watts. The color of his skin was black and his name was Emmett Till. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.